God, in this moment, we again ask for clarity. God, I pray that the words that I speak would be honoring to you and encouraging and edifying to your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a cultural moment that values the most productive, the most talented, the best looking. You know, no one's looking necessarily for mediocrity or people who are unqualified or underprepared. And we kind of then live into this sort of mindset or this trap of always feeling like we have to compete, always feeling like we have to maintain our image and kind of our perception and our reputation. But not so with God. Things are different with God. You know, what qualifies us, or better yet, what defines us primarily is not necessarily what we can do or accomplish or how many followers we have on Instagram or how many likes we get on a particular post. What qualifies us, or what better yet, what defines us is God's presence. And this is something that Moses is going to have to wrestle with as he and God have this dialogue back and forth at the burning bush. And as we find Moses here in Exodus chapter 3, we find him kind of tending to his father-in-law's sheep, the text says. And he's out kind of minding his own business, doing his everyday sort of thing, when lo and behold, at one point in the narrative, he turns and he sees this bush that the text says, quote, is not being consumed. But there's this other key detail I want to mention in these first few verses here in Exodus chapter 3. Notice, notice that before God speaks to Moses, Moses first in verse 3, the text says, turns aside, pays attention, And then in verse 4, the text says, when God saw that Moses had turned aside, then the Lord called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses responds, here I am. Now this might seem like kind of an insignificant detail, but here's why this is important. Moses is going about his business, doing his everyday sort of thing, tending sheep in the field, which he's been doing for decades up to this point. And it's only after Moses slows down. It's only after Moses slows down and turns and pays attention, then God, verse 4, speaks to him from the bush. Think about our own cultural moment. For how many of us is it easy just to move at the fast-pacedness of life, hurrying on to the next thing, just kind of going with the stream of the fast-pacedness, the busyness of our culture, and forgetting to slow down, to pay attention to those everyday moments where God is already present and at work. Where God is already speaking and calling to us, inviting us into a deeper partnership and relationship with him. And as God begins to speak to Moses, as God begins to call Moses, Moses is at this place where he slows down. He's present. I know I'm so guilty of this in my own life, just constantly moving down to the next thing and wanting to accomplish the next thing. Wanting to just keep going at the fast pace and the business of life. But again, it's at this moment where God now has Moses' full attention that Moses and God begin to have this dialogue. And as God speaks to Moses, as God begins to initiate this conversation, God tells Moses to do a couple things. The first thing he tells Moses to do is to take off your sandals because the place in which you are standing, the text says, is, quote, holy ground. Now think about this for a second. We're out in the desert, right? We're out in just this kind of no man's land, this desert, and God says the place in which you are standing is holy ground? I mean, what's so special about the desert, the dirt? What what makes this ground holy? Well, here's what makes this ground holy. God is there. And God's presence transforms everything, even dirt. 
And as God begins to speak to Moses, and as Moses is being invited into the presence of this holy God, Moses needs to make some adjustments. Moses needs to change a little bit. An adjustment needs to be made. His sandals need to, to come off, signifying that he, Moses doesn't just waltz into the presence of this holy God. Something needs to shift. Something needs to change. Now, this concept of, like, being holy or holy ground or holy presence, I mean, there's a loaded sort of term, if you will, right? The word holy, like holier than thou, maybe that's kind of the, the language that you might have in the back of your head if you have some sort of background with church or religion. But very simply, this concept or this term holy just simply means to be set apart for a purpose. Set apart for a particular vocation and purpose. And in particular, God's people, yes, they're called holy. Set apart to be used by God, to partner with God in his work. And God himself is holy. He's set apart and distinct, altogether unique and different. You know, it's not all that different from holiness being all that different from, say, your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is holy. Did you know that? It's set apart for a distinct purpose and one purpose only. Your toothbrush is not meant for keeping your shoes nice and white and clean. Your toothbrush, these are the conversations you have with, you know, your little kids, right? You have one specific purpose for that toothbrush. And if it does anything else, it's no longer set apart and holy. And the ground that Moses is standing on in the presence of this holy God is going to be set apart for this very important conversation and encounter that's going to call Moses out of the wilderness to a very particular purpose and call and partnership that Moses and God are going to have throughout the rest of the, really the rest of the Torah. Now, what I love about this narrative, how the narrative develops and continues, as God begins to initiate and continue this conversation, God's going to be speaking to Moses, and God's going to come, starting in verse 7, with all of these I statements, all of these things that God is seeing and is about to do. Verse 7, God says, I have seen their affliction. I have seen, I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Verse 8, I am going to come down and bring them out of the, to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 9, I have seen their oppression. So the narrative is building. I have heard their cry. I have seen their affliction. I'm going to come down, verse 8. And by the way, that language in verse 8 of God coming down, that's reminiscent back, back in the book of Genesis. The language of God coming down is used to describe when God's going to confront unilaterally and defeat and confront evil at its source. The Tower of Babel in Sodom and Gomorrah. So up until this point, if you're Moses, imagine Moses hearing this, these words coming out of God's mouth. I have seen, I have heard, I know the suffering, I know the pain. I'm going to come down and defeat and confront Pharaoh. And you're Moses at that moment, you're like, yes, go get him. Go do something about this injustice. Defeat and confront Pharaoh. But then verse 10, God says, come, I'm going to send you. Hold on a second, God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought you're the one who's going to come down. I thought you're the one who has seen the affliction, seen, heard the cries. What's up with the, why, why am I being, I thought, God, you were going to go do something about this. This reminds me of, I don't know if you ever had these moments where maybe you're in a conversation with your spouse or a coworker or a friend or your boss, and they come to you and they say, we should do X, right? And by we, they mean you. And so we always have to, you have these conversations like, so do you mean like we, me, we, or like actually us sort of we, right? 
And so this is one of those moments, right? Imagine Moses in this moment, the burning bush, being like, whoa, hold on, God. You said I was going to do all these things. Like, you were going to do all these things. Now, I'm going to be sent? Well, welcome to how God works in the world through humans. This is kind of like that, those moments. I don't know if you've had any of these moments where you become the answer to some of the prayers that you pray. Maybe you pray to God, God, would you encourage that person? Would you come alongside that person and encourage them? And God says, okay, why don't you be the one to encourage them? Or, God, you see the pain and the injustice out in the world. He said, God, would you please do something about the pain and the injustice and the suffering in this situation or in that situation or in that relationship? But God says, okay, I want to invite you to be a part of that. Sometimes we think that we might pray to God and, God, and we pray, God, would you do something about X? And then we go to sleep at night and then like God just works his magic and then you wake up in the morning and poof, it's all fixed and it's all done. That's just not how God often works in the world. God more often than not invites us, his human partners, to partner with him in his work, to see his work furthered and accomplished. And this is going to happen with Moses as you continue on reading through the book of Exodus. Later on, just in the same chapter, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, God is going to tell Moses that he is going to save Israel with a, quote, mighty hand. And this language of God's mighty hand or this outstretched arm or outstretched hand is used all throughout the book of Exodus and later by the prophets as they look back on the story of the Exodus and talk about how God has rescued Israel with a mighty hand. But here's the thing. When you actually read through the Exodus story, more often than not, it's Moses' right hand or Moses' arm that's being outstretched. When, when Moses, or when God turns the, the Nile River into blood, Moses stretches out his mighty hand. Throughout most of the ten plagues, as they are initiated onto the land of Egypt, Moses will outstretch his, his arm, his hand. And as they cross the Red Sea, what does Moses do with his staff and his arm? He outstretches it. And what's going on here? See, what, what we're seeing here in the book of Exodus is that there's times when Moses is on, like, his, his best moments— Sometimes it's almost hard to tell who is working, God or Moses. That Moses is so in tune, so close in relationship with God in these key moments. That God is working so closely. It's almost as if God is working, but God is working through Moses. Because that's actually the case. That, God, that Moses is in that close connection. In that deep relationship with God. That sometimes it's almost hard to tell who is actually working, God Moses. Now there's an important caveat that I want to mention here in this. As I say this and talk about how God is going to work through Moses, God is going to work through humans, I don't want you to come away with this idea that, you know, God is somehow dependent on humans. That God is somehow just desperately needing humans to accomplish his work. Right? No, no. God is not dependent on, on no one. God would do a much better and more efficient job at dealing with Pharaoh and dealing with all the problems in our own modern world. You know, sometimes it would, you kind of scratch your head and go, why is God, like, working through us, <laughs> right? We're broken. We're messed up. We have our issues. And I just say that to remind us that God is not dependent on us. And to, to, to kind of show that, think about just even our own salvation, that God alone saves that God alone is the one who saves and rescues and redeems us. 
That we are not the ones that somehow are the hero of the story. That God is the hero of the story. And see, we live in this cultural moment that thinks that we can, you know, achieve goodness on earth. We can achieve utopia. That we can have, as Mark Sayers, a pastor in Australia, says, the kingdom without the king. And that we can achieve all this goodness and all this progress apart from Jesus himself. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. Just a couple weeks ago... On Easter Sunday, I came across a tweet from a famous pastor turned politician who talked about and said in this tweet that the meaning of Easter was that we could actually save ourselves, that we could actually do good apart from anyone else just on our own. And I would just simply say that that's not the good news. The good news, and I, I truly believe that this is good news, is that I need something, rather someone outside of myself to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That we are the ones that are dependent. And all that to say, though, God in his mercy, in his grace, in his kindness, invites you and I and is inviting Moses to partner with him in his work. That God is a good, loving father inviting his kids to say, you know what? I want to invite you into my work. And this is key, right? God is not inviting Moses to just do whatever he wants, Moses is going to have to learn to, to submit to God's plan and in God's ways. That's kind of what I think partly what the sandals is all about. God telling Moses, you're entering into my project. You're entering into my plan here. That there's going to be a level of submission. There's going to be a level of recognizing the authority of God in Moses' life. Leading and, and, and listening to what God is saying and speaking to him. And the same, I think, is true for us. That is, God is calling each of us into his mission and his plan, that we are entering into, it might seem obvious, his mission, his plan, not our own. And there's a level of laying aside at times our preferences and our agendas so that we might be in line with his. Now, as the story continues, though, as Moses kind of has to make this adjustment of, you know what, when God said, I'm going to do all this stuff, he really meant that we're going to do all this stuff together. It's going to take some time for Moses to get on board with us. Now, as the rest of this, this sort of narrative continues from Exodus 3 into Exodus chapter 4, Moses is going to offer a series of objections to God. He's not fully on board with this, like, we're going to do this, you know, confront Pharaoh thing quite yet. Moses has a number of questions, four of them in particular, final, with, a, with a final plea at the end. So his first objection, he's going to ask, who am I? And then his second objection, he's going to ask, who are you, God? And then the third objection, he's going to say, God, what if they don't believe me? And then fourthly, Moses is going to say, I'm not a great public speaker. And then by the very end, Moses is like, I really don't have that much articulate to say, but he's just going to like basically say, please just send someone else. Right? Like, I'm, I, don't, I don't know, just send someone else to do this. But for the rest of our time today, I want to just focus on these first two objections or questions that Moses has. And this is really just in Exodus chapter 3 here. So the first question or objection that Moses has starts off in verse 10. Again, we read a little bit of this earlier, but God says in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? See, Moses is wondering this very simple question, Who am I? Now, if you think about it, again, try to put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. He's had a rough past. He's had a rough childhood. He's been abandoned by his mom for the best of reasons. 
He grew up not really knowing who he was. Was he Egyptian? Was he Hebrew? He spent a number of decades out in the wilderness trying to figure out, you know, God, what are you doing through all of this? His own people don't really trust him at this point in the narrative. Who am I? That's a fair question at this point. It's something that Moses is wrestling with. Who am I that I should be the one to go and confront Pharaoh? Now, I love how God answers the question. Verse 12, I will be with you. Moses asks, who am I? God's response, I will be with you. Now think with me for a moment. Did God answer Moses' question? No. Moses' question was, who am I? And God's response is, I will be with you. Right? See, this is what God, God doesn't come to Moses and be like, you know what, Moses, let me tell you who I am. You're a boss. You were born for this, right? You're the prince of Egypt. They're going to make a movie about you someday. He doesn't like pump Moses up with all this stuff about who he is. Like, you're an Enneagram 3. You have all these spiritual gifts. Like, you're amazing. He doesn't even pull out the line from Esther. You were born for such a time as this. See, what God is telling Moses, Moses, maybe you're asking Maybe not the most, it's an important question for sure, but maybe the more important question is who is going to be with you? I am going to be with you. And I think this is what God is telling Moses in this moment. That Moses, your ability and your identity is directly tied to my presence. Your ability and your identity is directly tied to my presence. And questions about who you are, your identity, are best resolved in my presence. That those questions that you have, those are important questions. And we're going to get to those questions. But what you need to have first is a deep, personal, relational connection with me. The one that is going to be with you. See, friends, we live in this cultural moment that is looking for an identity and trying to establish who we are in all these different sorts of areas and places in the world. Some of them good, some of them not so good. And we can fall into the temptation of trying to establish our own identity apart from the presence of God. Apart from a deep relational connection with him. And so we live in this moment too that judges our worth and our value based on what we can do. And what we can achieve. And how beautiful or not beautiful we might seem to be to the rest of the world. But God is saying who you are is directly tied to my presence. I am the one who is going to be with you. And I love this about this interaction and this back and forth that God and Moses have together. Who am I? Moses asks. Hold on a second, Moses. You need to remember this. I am the one who's going to be with you. Now, what leads to the second question then that Moses has. If God's response is, I am the one who's going to be with you, the next question that Moses has is like, well, then who are you then? Who are you, who is, who are you this one who's going to be with me? Look at me with me with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What then shall I say? Verse 14. Notice how God responds. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Now, again, it's, it's sort of comical when you kind of read through this because Moses is asking God, okay, who are you at this point? What's your name? And God responds with, I am. Which is, you know, not all that helpful, at least initially, right? Like, who are you? What's your name? I am. But here's what we got to do for a little bit here. Now, bear with me for about five minutes. We're going to do a little bit of deep theology and then come out of that and we'll then talk about what it means for you and me, all right? So that, that sound good? Well, you're a captive audience at this point, so you're here for that. Now, this next part, I'm really indebted to a man, uh, John Mark Comer. He's a pastor up in Portland. He wrote this short little book called God Has a Name. He talks about this concept that we're going to be discussing right now for the next few minutes. See, this is what, kind of the, how the narrative goes. See, earlier, God had come to Moses and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But apparently for Moses, God wants a little bit more information than you're the God of my ancestors. He asks in verse 13, what is your name? Now, in Hebrew, this phrase is ma-shemo, ma-shemo. Now, turn to your neighbor real quick and say ma-shemo. Ma-shemo, perfect. But here's the thing. If you're an ancient Hebrew reader at this point, and some of you are like, that's not me, just, just bear with me for a second. If pretend you're an ancient Hebrew reader and you come across that line ma-shemo, your ears would perk up at that point. Because this is not the typical way that someone in ancient Hebrew would ask, what is your name? The typical way that someone would ask, hey, what's your name, is me Shimka. And I'm probably getting the accents wrong, but again, bear with me here. Me Shimka. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, me Shimka. Me Shimka. Now, here's, here, here's what I want to point out. What's the difference between ma Shimo and me Shimka? Well, it's the stuff that Bible nerds stay up late reading about. The difference, though, is actually really crucial, right? Ma Shemo, the first one, the one that Moses uses, is more along the lines of what's the significance of your name? Like, like who are you really? Like, what is your character like? See, Moses isn't primarily asking for, like, a proper name, like Jim or Sally or Bob. He's asking what's the essence of who you are? Who are you truly deep down? What's your reputation? What's your character? And God responds with this phrase, I am who I am. In Hebrew, ewe, asher, ewe. And it can easily be translated, I will be whatever I will be. Or whatever I will be, I will be. Meaning this, that whatever God is, he is that consistently 110% of the time. That there's no facade, there's no fake, there's no hypocrisy. This, this God is consistently faithful, consistently loving, consistently going to be present with Moses. Someone who can be utterly depended on. And this is, what, this is how God responds to Moses' question. What is your name? God responds with, this is who I am. I am the one who is going to be with you. I am the one who is consistently going to be with you. And whatever you need from me, I'm going to be that for you. Whatever I will be, I will be. And then God builds on this. He says in verse 15, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, Notice with me how the Lord there is in all caps. Just as a quick kind of Bible thing, every time you see the Lord in all caps in your English Bible, what's behind that is the name Yahweh. 
It's God's personal covenant name. And this is the name that God discloses to Moses here for the first time to a biblical character in the storyline of the Bible. God says that, that the Lord or Yahweh has sent me to you. Now what's really crucial to get about this is that, again, this is the personal covenant relational name that God discloses to Moses and to, by extension, the rest of the people. See, the interesting thing is that the word God, G-O-D, is really just a generic kind of title or descriptor. It's not actually a name. You know, there's a whole bunch of like lowercase g gods to describe all sorts of different spiritual beings throughout the Bible. What God is disclosing to Moses here at this point is, is God's own personal covenant loyal name that Moses and the people of Israel are going to recognize and know this God by Yahweh. Kind of relating it to our day, right? I don't call my beautiful wife the wife. Right? That's like a title or a descriptor. I call her by her name, Cheyenne, or more intimately, Shy. Like name signal, relational, deep connection. And this is what God is inviting Moses to. This personal, deep, relational connection. That, this is what Moses needs before he goes to confront Pharaoh. This is what Moses needs as he is going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. A deep, abiding, relational connection with Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. And as the story continues, though, as the Exodus story continues, this is something that Moses is going to learn firsthand. That Moses is going to grow and mature into the kind of person that says up on Mount Sinai, God, if your presence will not go with us, how will the rest of the nations know who we are? It is it not in your going with us that makes us distinct or different? That what separates Israel and the people of God from the rest of the nations? Moses says in Exodus 33, it is your presence that distinguishes us. It is the relational nature of this God who wants to be with this people that distinguishes and identifies this people over everyone else. And God shows this. This is what the temple and the tabernacle are all about. That this God wants to be with and live with these people. That God says to Israel, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to live right in the middle of you guys. In the, ta in the tabernacle and later the temple. And even though Israel is going to kind of go their own way and essentially just sort of reject the presence of God, this God who relationally wants to stay connected with them and, and Israel is basically going to turn their back on God and do their own thing and go after other gods and other practices that are not in line with the way of Yahweh, God, through the prophets, is constantly saying, Israel, come back to me. Return from those wicked ways and come back to the, the relational presence that I have for you. And as Israel is essentially thrown into exile, the hope of the prophets was simply that one day God would return and that relational presence would be reestablished amongst the people of Israel. And as we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus fulfills this very promise indeed. That Jesus himself on numerous occasions would say and promise, I am the one who's going to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And that Jesus himself even more on various points, especially in John's gospel, declared himself to be this great I am from the book of Exodus chapter 3. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Clearly echoing back to Exodus 3, when God reveals his covenant personal name to Moses.
And just as the great I am in the book of Exodus, Yahweh himself is going to be with the children of Israel as he delivers them from slavery, so Jesus promises to be with us, his people. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says before he ascends to the Father, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And as the the New Testament writers and the apostles go and they spread the message of the good news of the kingdom of God, one of the key things that distinguishes them in Acts chapter 4 is that people recognize Peter and John, they're preaching and they're doing all these mighty things. In the crowd, they recognize that Peter and John, quote, they had been with Jesus. That was what separated them. That was what made them distinct. That was what identified them. Their relational connection to the God who was present to them. And by the end of the biblical story, at the end of the Revelation, we have this wonderful hope where God says that the dwelling place of God is with man. That he will come to be with us fully and completely. As we think about this story, as we think about Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, God revealing himself to Moses and to Israel and by extension to us, the God who is going to be present with Moses. How would this story, how does this story speak to us in our everyday life? You know, there's a lot we could say about this. There's a lot more we could talk about with Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. But one thing in particular, one question actually, that kept coming up as I was thinking and praying about this is simply this. Is God's presence enough? Is God's presence enough? In a cultural moment where it's so easy to be tempted and lured into all sorts of different things, to establish who we are, to build who we are, to be seen in the right sorts of ways, to accomplish all sorts of things, which may not honestly be bad, but in this sort of moment, is God's presence enough? See, if God's presence is enough, we will slow down and pay attention to those burning bushes in our everyday lives. Those moments where God is already present and at work. Will we take the time to do that? If God's presence is enough, I think we would. We'd be looking for those moments where God would be already present to us. See, if God's presence is enough, will we trust him and not our own abilities as he calls us to do things that we might feel like we are incapable of doing? Will we trust him and his power versus us and our own? Or maybe even the best part of this, if God's presence is enough, We will know God, not just know about him. We will genuinely know the living God. This holy God who's altogether unique and different and set apart, but yet is intimate and near and seeks to be in relationship with us. If God's presence is enough, we get to have this deep abiding relationship with this God. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the access to God is full and complete. Just like Moses, the book of Exodus says, talked to God as, he, as a friend face to face. So Paul says in the New Testament, that same access, that same relational connection is available to us as his people. And so friends, is God's presence enough? You know, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about this question is that again, kind of going back to earlier what I was saying about the fast pace and the busyness of life, one of the things that I've personally found is that on one level, 110%, God is with us all the time. God is already present to us, but often the case, I'm not present to God. There's that song we sometimes sing, the Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. 
come fill this place, fill the atmosphere. But there's that refrain towards the end of the song where we, we sing, Lord, help, or God, help me to be more aware of your presence. Help me to be more aware that you are already present and near with me. And as I think about this story, as I think about this question, as we seek to live our lives, what difference would God's presence make if we lived with this reality that God is already and always present to us? How would that truth and that reality of experiencing and abiding the continual, ever-present God with us change our parenting, our singleness, our vocations, our relationships, all these different areas that God has for us? How does the fact that the, the living God, the creator of the universe, is with me and that I get to be with him, how does that reality shape and transform all these different relationships, all these different spaces that you and I find ourselves. You know, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we spend the next few moments kind of responding and reflecting perhaps to what God has spoken, may I just invite you to be really thinking about that question. Is God's presence enough? God is revealing himself to Moses and the children of Israel saying, Moses, before you go off and do this thing and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, what's foundational, what is core, is that we would live from a space of deep relational connection to the presence of God. God, in this moment, in this place, we ask that you would, you would remind us of the fact that you are always with us. God, in so many ways, it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be sidetracked. And perhaps circumstances in life make it feel like you're not actually with us. But God, I pray in a deep way right now for each person in this room and each person listening online that you would remind them, you would show them, you would reveal to, reveal to them the ways you are already present. God, we want to be with you. We want to be a people who have a deep abiding connection with you. So God, please make that a deeper reality this morning. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name.